just around the corner. You're keeping good company with W-A-T-H. Forty-eight degrees outside. It's a Friday. Beautiful sunshine. They say it's going to get up to 72 today. And though it's a Friday, we've got a guest today. You know, for many months, even years, I guess, at least two, I've been giving you a bunch of statistics about COVID regularly. All of that's kind of slowed down. The state has changed their frequency of updating things. and So I, I asked uh, Dick Gaskell, Dr. James Gaskell, to join us this morning, and, and he's here. Good morning. Good morning, David. Welcome. Listen, um, I don't know. It's been a month or two ago that um, the state and the feds have been updating everything every day as of 2 p.m., something like that. And so I would jot those statistics down and bring them in here and share them often with our listeners the following day. Um, but it seems that evidently they feel like COVID's getting under control enough that they could uh, go to just reporting weekly, if you know what I mean. Now, I kind of, I kind of want to know still on the daily basis. Plus, we've got once in a while we hear about a new variant or something like that. So. What's, what's your perspective on this point of view? Well, it's quite remarkable how our incidence of disease has decreased over the last few weeks. If, if we go back to actually January 23rd, in Athens County, we had 1,522 cases over a week. By March 2nd, we had 96 cases in a week and most recently as of April 15th we had 21 cases in a week which is about three cases a day that is the lowest we have been in six months so our incidence of disease is gradually decreased very nicely and as that has decreased the uh, frequency of positive testing has gone down too at one time we were having about 10 positive tests, those are nasal swabs, for every 100 tests administrated. So 10%. 10%. It's down to 1.9% now. So it's quite a dramatic decrease in incidence of uh, disease. This is primarily disease due to the Omicron variant. The Delta variant has pretty much disappeared uh, we started with the Alpha. We had that for months, six or nine months. And then the Delta variant came along, and that was a very, very uh, uh, virulent organism, as well as highly contagious. And we had a number of people die, and we had children infected with the Delta variant. And then the Omicron variant came along, which was more contagious than the Delta. And, of course, the most contagious organism is the one that wins the battle. And Delta gradually disappeared, and Omicron replaced it as the uh, virus of the day, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Omicron was um, highly contagious, but not very virulent. So not very many people died from the Omicron. Certainly some people died, but not nearly as many as from the Delta. And now we're dealing with a, ver- a new variant, the Omicron 2. Uh, let's call the original Omicron Omicron 1, and the one we're dealing with now is Omicron 2. And, but you might also hear of it as B2, right? E- exactly. It, you might notice in the newspaper, et cetera, that it is B2. So B2 is starting to make an appearance uh, in our society, 
And uh, when you, when when you consider like the severity of each of these types, is this still more serious or you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, the most virulent organism that we dealt with was the Delta variant. Okay. That killed more people, and more people entered the hospital and ended up on respirators and ICUs. Uh, the B1 uh, was not as virulent, not as many people hospitalized, uh, quite contagious, very contagious. A lot of people had mild disease. There was a breakthrough disease. Even though you had been vaccinated, you might get B1. Uh, it was uh, often asymptomatic or uh, not very symptomatic. Uh, so B1 was, a, if you will, a better organism to have. Infected more people, but less seriously infected them. Uh, Delta infected children, and we had children hospitalized and children died from Delta. Uh, B1, much less so. Now, certainly some people have been hospitalized with B1 and certainly some people have ended up on the in on ventilators in the ICU with B1 but not nearly as many as with Delta so the organism is the the omicron organism has been more contagious but less virulent and now the B2 that's coming along seems to be even less virulent uh, but a little bit more contagious, about 30% more contagious than B1. B2 is about 30% more contagious. And it's just now entering our society. It's been in uh, Great Britain, uh, Germany, France, uh, uh, Israel, mm. um, China uh, for a few weeks. And these viruses seem to uh, enter the United States about one month after they've appeared in Great Britain primarily. We, we begin to hear about it about, about a month after it's been in Great Britain. So B2 is just uh, entering our population. It's found in all the states, uh, but um, mainly in New England, New York, New Jersey, uh, Philadelphia, uh, reinstituted their mask mandate because of B2 infections. Uh, New York had an outbreak over the weekend. They haven't reinstituted their mask mandates, but uh, they are talking about it. It's found in New England, and, and we're learning more about the organism, but it seems to be less virulent uh, than B1, uh, highly contagious, and we'll have to see over the next few weeks what it does in our society. Now we have safeguards we have some things that improve our situation, Dave. Uh, one is a lot of us have already had B1. And if you've had B1, there's good evidence that you won't get B2. Mm. We've also been vaccinated, and, and we have more and more people uh, vaccinated and boosted. Uh, and that improves the situation considerably. So I, I'm uncertain as to how uh, serious the outbreak of B2 will be because we have uh, some protections now. We have more people vaccinated. Uh, as a matter of fact, 71% uh, of the people in our society have encountered uh, B1 in some manner. They've either had breakthrough infections or they've had very mild infections. Uh, uh, an awful lot of people have had B1, and there's very good evidence that if you've had B1, you won't get B2. So uh, it's possible that B2 will enter our society but not uh, uh, cause a, a lot of infections. And then we have the people who have sort of hybrid protection. They've been vaccinated, which uh, provides antibodies against the spike protein of the virus, and they've also had disease. They've had hybrid protection. They've had the disease mildly, and the the protection from the disease involves antibodies against the entire virus. So they have spike protein protection from the vaccine and they have antibodies against the virus from having had the disease. So they have hybrid protection. They're probably pretty well protected and not going to get this new B2 variant. Well, let me let me ask. Now, you know, they've, they've pushed getting tests over and over for several years now. Um, some places offer drive-through um, nasal swabs and things like that. Um, the county, uh, you can go down there to your department, I think, and get these tests, right? That's true. And um, there's even been programs where you could call a phone number and they would, um, well, you could pick up at the county library uh, pack uh, test packs. Now, 
Say I have a test pack that uh, I picked up uh, three months ago. Is it going to tell me about B2? Or is it only going to tell me about the ones that were being active back then? It'll tell you about deep B2. Okay. The, these tests are uh, antigen tests. They're rapid tests. They are not exquisitely sensitive. They're not as sensitive a test as, say, a PCR test, which uh, measures the DNA particles of the virus. This measures the uh, proteins of the virus. It's not quite as sensitive. So sometimes people that have uh, COVID disease require two or three of these nasal swab tests, these rapid tests that you can get in a variety of places. Mm -hmm. So uh, they're not uh, exquisitely sensitive, but they are a, a, a valuable test. One of the things that's happening in our society today is uh, many people have these tests at home. They've, they've either purchased them or got them, some, got them from the library free, and they will test themselves. And sometimes they have positive tests, and in our society today, people understand what they need to do if they have a positive test. They need to isolate at home for five days, and then they need to mask up for five days. And so the reports are not made to the health department, and the only people that know that to have a positive test is the individual and perhaps their family members and right. maybe their, uh, maybe the people they work with. <clears throat> so rep <coughs> reporting... Uh, um, of the disease has decreased. So we have more difficulty knowing how much disease there is in our society. What we're tracking now uh, is hospitalizations and uh, emergency room visits, but we're not able to track uh, home testing and the incidence of disease. Previously, uh, all the testing was reported to ODRS, which is a high disease reporting system, by the laboratories who performed a test. So sure. we knew how many positive tests we had in society. But with the advent of home testing, we no longer have that. You're not required to report your home test, uh, if it's positive, to uh, anybody. I'm, I'm well... You, you are supposed to report it to the health department, but that often doesn't happen. We know that doesn't happen. So it's harder to track how much disease we have in our society. Well, let's see here. Um, when you, you, you're our um, director of our county health department. Uh, you are a doctor. Um, during your lifetime, because there was a time for many years that you were in private practice. Um, have, you know, is this the most dramatic thing that's happened during your years of medical knowledge? Certainly. Um, there have been some brief episodes uh, of spread of disease. We had a little outbreak of bacterial meningitis in Ohio University college students about 10 years ago. And, and that was worrisome and infected about uh, 13 college students. It was a serious disease. Bacterial meningitis sometimes is fatal. Actually, we had one student die. Uh, and that was pretty dramatic for a, a few months, but uh, it was nothing compared to this. The last pandemic in the United States was uh, 100 years ago. Uh, the great influenza pandemic of 1918-1919. Worldwide killed uh, 20 to 40 million people. Uh, it was chronicled in a very nice book by James Barry called The Great Influenza. Mm -hmm. People died within three or four days of acquiring that disease. It was a hemorrhagic influenza disease. They bled to death and they died rapidly. This disease we've had opportunities to um, affect the outcome. We can treat this disease. We now have hospitals and ventilators and uh, int intensive care units. We had none of those things in 1918, 1919. And of course, it was also fueled by a world war. World War I was going on, and the people were traveling and they spread the disease. And of course, that's one of the problems we have today. We don't have a world war, but there certainly is a war going on. Uh, 
uh, between Ukraine and Russia, and I'm sure that that's affecting the spread of disease in Europe. Uh, the Omicron, too, is probably being spread now because of uh, the disruption in normal activities uh, occurring in these nations. So, um, you know, that's probably going to affect some of the spread. It certainly did in uh, World War I. And we have uh, so many more uh, treatment modalities at our disposal today than they did then. And in those days, what happened was you either got the disease and survived and then had permanent immunity, or you got the disease and died. So everybody got it. Uh, and uh, eventually, it uh, disappeared because there was nobody else left to infect. Now, we're hopeful that this Omicron 1 has infected enough people, uh, and we have had vaccinated enough people, that as Omicron 2 appears, we won't have a huge outbreak. We're hopeful that perhaps uh, there are enough people with immunity due to vaccine and disease that we won't see large numbers of people infected. And this is our way out, perhaps, of this pandemic, is through vaccination and through uh, acquisition of disease. You threw out a figure a little bit ago um, <clears throat> of how many died during the, um, the 1919 um, pandemic. pandemic. And the name of that disease was what again? That was the Great Influenza. Okay. Now, throw that number out again. 20 to 40 million. 20 oh. to 40 million deaths. Okay. Now, COVID. Um, like I said, a couple weeks ago, I stopped getting these regular statistics. So I've stopped keeping track of that. Even though I did it every day at 2 o'clock. So... How many people now have been a, have died from COVID? Well, worldwide. Na well, worldwide, I'm not sure, but nationally, we're approaching a million. We're at nine hundred thousand, uh, so we have had uh, a, a lot of death. Uh, we're not at a million in the um, in the United States uh, over the last week. We had 29,000 cases, 452 deaths, and 1,455 hospitalizations. So uh, things have settled. Um, six months ago, uh, we had many more cases than that. So we are approaching about uh, a million deaths in the United States, mm -hmm. which is sort of scary. But it doesn't approach what happened uh, in 1918, 1919. But of course, now, in those days, they didn't even have hospitals. Um, and they certainly had no vaccine. You know, yesterday we had uh, Bob Reimer on the air, the fire chief. And, um, you know, in, in 1830, our fire department was established here in Athens. And it's in the building where uh, City Hall is now. Um, and they had stables next door. Because, you know, the only equipment they had was water wagons. <laughs> and, um, you know, my, how times have changed. And the, um, the things that are available to us today, uh, whether it is for firefighting or controlling disease or simply being treated at a, um, a health facility, for regular things as well as accidents. I mean, it's amazing. Yes, we, we, we live in a time when some miraculous things can occur. Uh, it's quite remarkable that we were able to produce a vaccine for this disease within nine months. The basic science was ongoing over the last 20 years. That all started... 20 years ago when SARS appeared, which was severe acute respiratory syndrome, it was a novel coronavirus, came out of China in 2002, uh, killed about uh, 
5,000 people infected maybe 25,000 people, but we started working on a vaccine because we thought it would be a worldwide pandemic and mm -hmm. was somewhat limited. And uh, we began work on a vaccine. We thought that, uh, that as that work continued, we might develop uh, vaccines for diseases like smallpox and anthrax because we had some concern that they might be used uh, as weapons against us in bioterrorism events. So we continued the process of working on messenger RNA vaccines, but uh, never completed it. They developed some basic science. And then when this novel coronavirus came along in 2019, um, the U.S. government uh, invested heavily in production of a vaccine, and they were able to complete it within nine months uh, to a year. It was about a year after uh, the novel coronavirus was first reported until we had a vaccine. Uh, that seemed like a very long year to uh, the health departments and, uh, uh, and, and society as we waited for a vaccine because we knew that that was uh, the way that to uh, prevent disease. And, and, but they just completed the they just completed the basic science that they had, which was fairly miraculous, and they developed a, uh, very good vaccines that have worked uh, very effectively and very safely uh, to prevent disease. I, um, okay, so I have um, a shot card, or a, a, yeah, I'll call it that. Um, and I got the first one and then the second one, and then now there's these boosters, and I've had now two of those. Um, do you foresee there's going to be yet another down the road? Yes, um, and I, I can't help but be a little concerned about giving repeated boosters. Okay. I don't think that this is a sustainable... Uh, plan to handle this coronavirus. I think we need more durable vaccines. The messenger RNA vaccines are highly effective, but it seems that the antibodies begin to wane after four to six months, and so we're having to get boosters. I don't think that's sustainable over a long period of time. I think we need improved vaccines that will be more durable and last a longer period of time. And indeed, a research is ongoing now to produce those vaccines. But the reason we've had to have boosters is that we've observed uh, waning of immunity uh, to the virus after uh, four to six months. And so over the long term, uh, I don't think that's sustainable. Uh, that puts a lot of pressure on the the companies to produce uh, more vaccine uh, on public health to administer vaccine. I think we need vaccines that last a longer period of time so that we could get boosted maybe once a year. And indeed, uh, there are several companies working on uh, new vaccines. Uh, uh, Glasgow, Smith & Klein has asked for authorization uh, from the FDA uh, to investigate a protein-based uh, vaccine. They've asked the FDA for uh, permission to, in, uh, to uh, conduct trials. Um, there's another company called Covisense, which is working on a vaccine made from plants. Uh, we'll have to see what those trials look like. And we'll, see, we'll have to see if perhaps the vaccines we have available today can be altered in some way using adjuvants. Adjuvants are uh, agents that enhance the uh, capability of the vaccine and make it last longer. Adjuvants have used and been used in other vaccines like measles vaccine and chickenpox vaccine. One of the vac one of the adjuvants that's commonly used is aluminum. They put a little bit of aluminum in, in the vaccine and it makes it more potent and uh, more durable. So that I think that investigations will be ongoing trying to provide us with vaccines that last a longer period of time because I imagine we'll come to a place where, like influenza, we'll get a COVID vaccine once a year. Now, if we were to get a COVID vaccine once a year 
using the current vaccines, which last four to six months, that wouldn't be so bad. We could get our vaccine around the same time as we get influenza, and it would get us through the respiratory season, by and large. And then the disease is um, less, um, uh, is seen less commonly in the spring and summer months, uh, and that's what happened last year. Uh, we didn't have very much uh, COVID vaccine in the summer months because people were outdoors more. And those respiratory illnesses seem to abate uh, when um, people are outdoors and, and not in close proximity to each other. So um, it's possible that a vaccine that lasts four to six months will be efficacious, uh, but I would like to see a more durable vaccine uh, produced. So, you know, it's it's customary for, uh, at least in my house, and I suppose it's true of everyone, I hope, that uh, at a certain time of the year you go to the drugstore, pharmacy, I should say, or um, or whatever, and get a flu shot and a shingles shot and all these different things. Is uh, would you do you think most people do that um, at the start of the year, or is it done at the start of a season? Usually it's the start of the season, Dave. And the season is what? Um, the respiratory season started in November. Okay. November, December, January, February, March, about five months of respiratory illnesses. Uh, so the flu shot, all those things, most people receive in November, you're saying? Yeah, October, November. Okay. We don't like for them to get flu shot too soon. Uh, a few years ago, people were starting to get their flu shots in August. And that was a little early because their immunity then would begin to wane and the disease would still be around in, uh, let's say, March. So you're, you're, if I understand you right, uh, you're saying eventually it may be that we'll have yet another shot to take on that regular basis in October or November. Indeed. And I, it'll be specifically marked for COVID. Yeah, and it's possible they could combine a COVID uh, an influenza vaccine in one shot uh, as a messenger RNA vaccine. Now, the influenza vaccine we, we receive today is not a messenger RNA vaccine. It's a traditional vaccine uh, made from the whole virus. The messenger RNA vaccine uh, in, involves uh, very complicated uh, science, uh, but it can be produced very rapidly and I'm sure that they can develop a messenger RNA vaccine uh, for influenza. We might be able to have a combination vaccine that has been altered a little bit to make it a little more durable so it lasts a little longer than the four months. Maybe we could have it last about six months, and that would be uh, ideal. Folks, if you didn't hear us uh, when we first started, our guest today is Dr. James Gaskell. Uh, most, uh, most of us that know him call him Dick Gaskell. Now, um, Dick, let's, let's just have a little fun here. What? Uh, wh where were you raised? I was raised in Elwood City, Pennsylvania, a steel mill town uh, north of Pittsburgh. And was your father's profession that of working in the steel mills? Well, he did when he was a very young man uh, before he entered World War II. Uh -huh. After World War II, he... Uh, went to uh, college for a short period of time, uh, uh, studied uh, primarily mathematics, and then was employed eventually by Babcock and Wilcox as a, a purchasing agent uh, in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, which was only 10 miles away. Elwood City was part of the Beaver Valley, uh, Newcastle, Elwood City, Beaver Falls, Rochester, Ambridge, Aliquippa, uh, steel mill towns. Wow, you really named them off quickly there. Yeah, well, we played them all in football, uh -huh. and they were all tough. Sure, <laughs> I'll bet. So, um, you know, at what point in your life did you kind of settle in on, uh, I, I think I want to be a physician? Well, uh, you know, I always liked science. And when I was about uh, a junior in high school, I was required as a part of a course to write up essay on something and so I picked surgery and I 
I, I wrote an essay on the evolution of surgery in the United States, and that sort of caught my fancy. And so I decided that I'd, I'd take pre-med in college, and if I really liked it, I'd pursue medicine. If I didn't, I'd become a professor in biology or probably biology or chemistry that I'd, I, I'd go into higher education. Mm. But I, but I, actually, I loved pre-med. Uh, I loved histology. Uh, I, I, I liked biochemistry particularly. Uh, and so I went ahead and applied to medical school. And luckily, I went to a small college in central Pennsylvania that if you had the recommendation of the professor, the head of the Department of Biology, you probably got into medical school. And uh, actually... At, at little old Juniata College, we started with 75 pre-meds, ended up with five of us that applied to medical school, and we all had the recommendation of a professor called Dr. Homer Will, and we all got into medical school. So all of us that applied got in, but uh, we lost a, a lot of people along the way. Uh, some of them didn't handle organic chemistry very well, and you had to have Oh, probably A's or AB's in organic chemistry to get into medical school. And if you had C's in organic chemistry, you probably didn't get in. So they, the, that weeded out a lot of uh, pre-meds. Mm -hmm. Sure. In medical school, what did you, where did you select? Or who selected you, should I say? Well, you know, I was from uh, western Pennsylvania. And Pitt, University of Pittsburgh at the time, uh, was uh, recruiting some well-known researchers, including Dr. Jonas Salk, yes. who was famous for the Salk vaccine. He was at Pitt. And he developed his vaccine around uh, 1956. And uh, I entered medical school in 1960, so uh, I knew that Salk was at Pitt. And they were recruiting other well-known famous researchers, and I thought, boy, they are going to acquire a reputation as one of the top medical schools in the United States, so that's where I'd like to go. So that influenced my decision. I did apply at uh, Jefferson Med School in uh, Philadelphia and University of Pennsylvania, um, and, and I was accepted at all of them, but uh, I chose Pitt because, uh, well, it wasn't very far from home, and they sure. also were uh, uh, recruiting all these uh, famous researchers who were going to be my professors. Now, Dr. Salk only lectured to us uh, one time a year, so I didn't see him very often. Yeah. But uh, certainly it was nice to have him around. The health department, a county health department. Um, tell us what your basic purposes are. Well, we have a number of... Um, sections within our health department. We have a vital statistics section, which provides uh, birth certificates and death certificates and uh, reviews all the causes of death annually in our county. We have a section of environmental health. Uh, and our sanitarians inspect sewage, sewage uh, private sewage systems. Mm -hmm public sewage systems, we do uh, restaurant inspections, uh, we inspect all the uh, uh, school systems, we have a rabies control system, um, we uh, issue licenses for septic, ha septic haulers, uh, private sewage systems, uh, and then we have a public health nursing department, which has been administering uh, all these vaccines for COVID disease and many other vaccines. All the childhood vaccines are administered by our public health nurses. Uh, they do, uh, crib, I have a kib, Cribs for Kids program. Where the, where do they that again. They, cribs, cribs for Kids. Okay. All the babies that are born at Oblenus are offered a free crib oh. to uh, go home with. So uh, some of the mothers uh, have them but many don't, and so yeah. we offer them a free crib. We, we have a Project Dawn uh, training, which anybody uh, who's interested or has some family member who might be using opioids and might overdose on opioids is trained to administer Narcan, 
as a nasal spray to resuscitate them in case they overdose from uh, the opioids. So we have Project Dawn training. Dawn is an acronym for death avoided with naloxone or Narcan, which is a drug which reverses the effects of opioids. Uh, if somebody overdoses, it affects their respiratory system and they stop breathing and may die. Uh, Narcan reverses that process. And uh, we, we, so we give a lot of Narcan kits out through the nursing department. We also have a harm reduction clinic, which uh, weekly on a Wednesday afternoon provides a needle exchange for those people who are injecting uh, various opioids like heroin and fentanyl. Needle exchange. A needle exchange, Dave. Is, uh, uh, just on the surface, it sounds like encouraging. Yes. Uh, certainly there are many people that object to us uh, providing uh, clean needles to society. I, I think that they um, perhaps don't recognize that probably the user of opioids is going to use whether they have a clean needle or a dirty needle available. Mm. And the dirty needles are needles that have been used previously. And uh, they encourage spread of disease. Dirty needles spread staph infections. They spread hepatitis B and hepatitis C, which are viral infections. And the opioid using community has a lot of hepatitis B and hepatitis C in that community. Mm. And that's because they share needles. And we're trying to encourage them to not share needles. And uh, so we exchange dirty needles for uh, clean needles. That also uh, prevents those dirty needles from being discarded in our playgrounds, in our uh, parking lots, and various other places in the community where the dirty needles are sometimes discarded. So they bring their dirty needles into us, and we provide them with clean needles. And we also take advantage of that opportunity to offer them Narcan, and every time they appear, we have somebody available to talk to them about treatment. And we also offer them some food, some vegetables. Uh, So we offer them treatment, which is an opportunity to see them every week. And uh, sometimes we engage them and sign them up for treatment. We provide clean needles so the needles are not discarded in the streets and so they don't get infections from those needles. And we have witnessed in our county, a decrease in hepatitis B and hepatitis C infections uh, as a result of our harm reduction clinic or needle exchange program, which has been going on now for five years. Uh, We initiated this because we had an abrupt, serious increase uh, reported of hepatitis C and hepatitis B infections in our community. Dramatically, those infections increased and we looked at those numbers and said, we have to do something about this. And we knew where it was coming from. We knew it was coming from shared needles in that community. And, and primarily the hepatitis B and C infections were occurring in the uh, opioid using community. And we witnessed a decrease. So we think it's been effective and we can defend this program uh, by data which shows a decrease in hepatitis B and C. We also think that it's worthwhile to keep the needles off the streets and out of the playgrounds and that yep. sort of thing. But indeed, that suggestion occurs frequently that uh, we're aiding and abetting the opioid-using community. But it also gives you a chance to counsel them. Yes, it does. And, and try to correct a, a bad situation. And, and indeed, that is a location where they're treated with respect. Uh, and, and sometimes... Uh, uh, they are not treated with respect yes. because uh, they're not well thought of. You know, as I think back, I'm changing topics here a little bit. Um, what I'll never forget as a child, um, and I don't know how old I was, um, but on a Sunday afternoon after church, going to the Worthington Gymnasium at Worthington High School, where everybody was to get the vaccine for polio. Yes. I'll bet that was the Sabin vaccine. That was probably sugar cubes. Uh, I I don't remember that part. I just remember uh, us all being in lines and everybody was dressed up from having been at church. And um, 
parents took it, kids took it, everybody. And the, the sheer mass of people and the, the way it was organized and everything. Now, you know, with COVID, we've had some mass situations and, and the university and your department have coordinated things and like suddenly can't think of the name of the hall, but um, heritage. Yeah, her the heritage, heritage hall. Heritage hall of osteopathic medicine. And um, you know, it wasn't on the same scale as the old high school experience, but it was still a large gathering of people who would, on a certain afternoon or a certain day, come to get vaccinated. And uh, then you waited 15 minutes to make sure there was no adverse reaction. Um, it's amazing. It just is amazing. And now we're vaccinated to the degree, to the to the proper number or what? I'll stop. The point is uh, these boosters. Um, okay, now if you if you're eligible for a booster, you just go to the health department, as my wife and I did last week or two weeks ago, I guess. And we got our second booster. And it was very simple. Um, but, you know, still, there's so many people out there that are refusing um, to be vaccinated at all. Yeah, it, it's a little hard to understand uh, their refusal now because the vaccines have been administered to so many people safely and the vaccines have been demonstrated to be effective. Um, so it is a little bit hard to understand the prejudices mm -hmm. against the vaccines. Now, you remember lining up probably to get the Sabin oral polio vaccines, yes, which sir. was the sugar cubes. And there was great fear of polio in those days Polio caused paralysis of single extremities, and sometimes people died, children died from polio. So the Salk vaccine was embraced, and that was an injectable vaccine. But, of course, uh, you had to get uh, three Salk vaccines, and uh, the Sabin vaccine, as an oral vaccine, came along uh, about five years later, uh, more easily administered. You could give the oral uh, Sabin vaccine to many people very quickly, and so for years, Sabin vaccine was the vaccine that we used. It was a live attenuated vaccine. The Sabin, the Salk vaccine was a killed vaccine, no live virus. The problem with the Sabin vaccine was by the time we eliminated polio from the United States, and we pretty well did, uh, the only polio that might appear was a vaccine induced. Uh, due to the live attenuated vaccine. Somebody who had maybe who was on chemotherapy or somebody had an altered immune system didn't handle the live attenuated vaccine very well and they would get polio. We would have about six cases annually in the United States of vaccine-induced polio. So we went back to the Salk vaccine. Now we don't have any vaccine-induced polio. We don't have any polio in the United States. None. Zero. All due to vaccine. We haven't seen in the world any smallpox for mm, 50 years due to vaccinations. Uh, we hardly ever see chickenpox, measles, mumps, German measles mm -hmm. uh, in the United States. Very rare. Uh, occasional outbreaks in locations that have refused uh, vaccination. And I, I should mention perhaps uh, this, the Amish uh, didn't uh, vaccinate their children uh, until they had an outbreak of measles in their community. Uh, I think the men went off to the Philippines to build houses and acquired measles in, in the Philippines, brought it home to the Amish in Ohio, and they had an outbreak of measles. Well, uh, they witnessed how sick their children got from measles and then accepted the vaccine. Mm. Um, and so when vaccination proved programs have been embraced, we can eliminate disease. And we have historically uh, many examples that we can uh, provide to society. 
to remind them that indeed vaccine programs work very effectively. And there are occasional uh, hiccups, there are side effects from vaccines. Occasionally that happens. Uh, that's happened, that happened when we first uh, developed the measles vaccine. I remember giving it, and, and it was a live attenuated vaccine, and it hadn't been attenuated enough, Dave. So we gave some kids measles, mild measles, mm. and then we had to deal with that. The, the, the manufacturers produced a better vaccine. And about a year later, we had a really good vaccine that was effective but didn't give any children uh, measles. So there are occasional hiccups with these vaccine programs. But uh, by and large, they've been effective and highly effective in the United States. So it's surprising that people uh, haven't by now begun to embrace our uh, coronavirus vaccination programs. Folks, in, uh, in case you tuned in late, and let me repeat a statistic. Um, and um, Dick, you helped me uh, do this right. Um, the COVID thing. Um, the statistics, uh, we have five, 1,522 deaths in what period? Uh, ab- about two years and in Athens County. Last, we had 96. Uh, you do that one thing again, and now 21. Oh, you you mean uh, the, the number of deaths that we've had? Yes. Well, uh, if you th- can find th- that. This is the United S- I'll give you United States update. Okay. Over uh, cases uh, over uh, the last week in the United States. Okay, there, there we go. 29,404 cases uh, in, over a week, 452 deaths, 1455 hospitalizations over the over the last week in the United States. Now, in Athens County, altogether we've had about 14,000 cases, 141 deaths, but we now recently as an average had only 21 cases over the last week, which is about three a day. It's amazing. So it, it's it's come down considerably. We have two minutes remaining. If if there's something that um, is there something on your um, hidden list of thoughts of things you'd like to do for Athens County health wise that you've not been able to um, tackle yet. Well, you know, we've been consumed with the COVID response sure. for two years, and, and we still are engaged in that. We're giving about 30 to 40 boosters a day at the health department, uh, and so for the foreseeable future, we'll be involved in that, and, and I think that's really important. I think the boosters are important because uh, they've been shown to decrease uh, the disease. I'll tell you what I would like to be more engaged in. Uh, I, I think that uh, sort of a hidden part of health is um, the uh, societal effects that we have. I mean, all of us get sick and we go to the doctor and we get a specific treatment for our ailment. Mm-hmm. but housing, food, um, physical activity are all um, a part of all of our lives, and some of us neglect that. I think those uh, parts of uh, healthy living need to be embraced and, and engaged in more frequently. We need to pay more attention to those things. And actually, our uh, our our, our our, uh, We've got about 30 seconds. Left. <laughs> okay. That's all right. Uh, Sorry. Our, our, uh, our nurse education department at the health department, yes. uh, which is headed by Ruth Dunning, and you know her very well. Uh, and Ruth's edu- sure. Yeah. Uh, Ruth's program is involved in that, in the uh, social determinants of health, a- and I think those are important. Well, our guest today, uh, Dr. James Gaskell. Dick, thanks for coming in. Always enjoy it, David. Always a pleasure. And folks, have a safe weekend, please.
In our 72nd year of serving Southeast Ohio, AM 970 and 97.1 FM. WATH This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Linda Kenyon in Washington. The flagship of Russia's naval fleet off the southern coast of the country has been sunk after it was hit by Ukrainian missiles. That's according to Ukraine. Robert Bell, the former advisor to the U.S. ambassador to NATO, says Russia claims otherwise, but... It's a bit uh, bizarre that Russia is saying that Ukraine did not sink it, and yet they are retaliating today with missile strikes. And Bell says Russia may have been taken by surprise. It means that the Russians have had to move their whole Black Sea fleet back out of range of these Neptune missiles, which effectively takes them out of the war unless they want to take high risk and bring them closer to the coastline again. Violence in Jerusalem on this Good Friday. Palestinian stone throwers clashed with Israeli police at the Mosque of Al-Aqsa here in Jerusalem, but calm was restored and hours later, Christians joined the traditional Good Friday procession, retracing the path of Jesus to the crucifixion. At sundown, Jews will celebrate Passover. Robert Berger, CBS News, Jerusalem. Wind-driven wildfires continue to burn in several states in the west and southwest. A wildfire burning in southern New Mexico has claimed two lives and destroyed more than 200 homes. 5,000 people have been evacuated from the mountain town of Rio Doso. Students had to quickly flee their fire-threatened high school. Honestly, it was very traumatizing because we have siblings at the school across the street. We knew there was a fire, but we didn't know it was that bad. It was very, like, scary. Large, uncontrolled wildfires are also burning in Colorado, Texas, and Oklahoma. Jim Crisula, CBS News. The governor of Texas has turned to Mexico to settle part of a border fight with the Biden administration. Here's CBS's Ed O'Keefe. Republicans and a growing number of Democrats say the Biden administration needs a better plan to manage an expected surge of migrants. Texas is tired uh, of being the unloading dock uh, for illegal immigrants crossing the border. Uh, the new unloading dock is going to be Washington, D.C. And in a symbolic criticism of the Biden administration, Abbott has sent at least two bombs.